This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Asia Suler. She's a writer, teacher, earth intuitive, and ecological philosopher who has guided over 20,000 students all over the world through her immersive online programs in herbalism, animism, ancestral healing, and earth-centered personal growth, where she helps people embrace their own unique medicine through a joyful engagement with the natural world and she's the author of this wonderful new book that we're going to be talking about, Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World. Asia, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here with you. 
I'm really excited to discover where this conversation goes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so let's begin with what you mean by mirrors in the earth and earth-centered personal growth and also how you came to all of this or how it came to you. Sure. So the title Mirrors in the Earth came from this realization that the earth is constantly reflecting back to us our goodness, that often we are seeking to see ourselves. And these days, a lot of the ways in which we seek to see ourselves are through things like selfies or social media. And yet it's an incomplete mirror. You know, we only see certain aspects of ourselves that way. And yet earth is is a mirror that is always reflecting back to us our fullness and our goodness. And there's a concept in psychology, mirroring. And when we're little, when we're small children, our parents' role in an ideal world is to mirror back to us the fullness of who we are, to mirror back to us not only our feelings or our thoughts, but our self-worth, our confidence, to sort of give that back to us, especially when we project it onto them. And from this perspective, from an animist perspective, the earth is the parent mirror that never forsakes us. It's the parent mirror that we are really built to be gazing into. It's the caretaker that is always here for us to show us who we are. And so my book, Mirrors in the Earth, it's a collection of stories from the living world that was sort of designed to show us who we are, to show us and help us remember who we are. And, you know, this wasn't my design. I think this is the design that is naturally inherent to nature, that we are, are meant to look into the benevolent mirror of this earth so that we can recognize ourselves. And that's, that's for a reason, because when we can really see ourselves, we can begin to understand the gifts that we are here to bring to this planet. And the earth is very invested in us understanding those gifts. So this is by natural design that we can learn to see ourselves through the parables and, and metaphors and stories that exist in the ecological processes here on this planet. So for me, the journey of writing this book, it took about 10 years to write it. And in part, that was because I had to sort of realize what the book was about. I was having these profound experiences in nature where I was understanding new levels of myself and healing layers of my being and I was collecting these stories because they were just incredible moments. And yet I didn't understand the overarching thing that really bound them together. And it was this concept that we can see ourselves through the mirrors in the earth and that learning self-compassion through gazing into those mirrors is a force of ecological healing because it's only through seeing and accepting ourselves that we see and accept our gifts that we bring to this world. So I came to this place of in this life of working with nature, both through writing and herbalism and, and teaching through my experience of having early years of chronic pain in my late teens, early 20s, and also dealing with chronic illness. So I dealt with years of chronic pain conditions when I was young. And then pretty soon after that, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and spent several years healing from that as well. And I know a lot of people's experience with chronic illness and chronic pain and just healing crises in general is that it, it tends to cause you to search for answers. And for me, that push was to 
actually end up delivering me outdoors. So I often say that the world inside my body was so uncomfortable, I went outside. And I think a lot of people return to their connection with their own inner self and with the wider world through these healing crises. And so that's exactly what happened for me. I started going out into nature and connecting with the trees and the creek. And it was really one of the only places where I felt seen and where I felt hope. And it was through these experiences of connecting with the natural world before I had even gone to herbal school or knew any plant names or anything like that. I just started developing relationships and started having these really beautiful experiences of affirmation and and welcoming and belonging. And so this was really the, the genesis of this book. And it's been a beautiful experience to look into that mirror and now be sharing that invitation to look in the mirror with other folks. I absolutely loved this book. I could totally relate to everything you were you were writing about it. It like it sang the chord note of my own heart reading mm-hmm. it. So it was such a beautiful experience. It was like, you know, looking into the mirror of your experience and experiencing feeling and, and seeing myself in there. And you talked about how the earth acts as a natural mirror for us. But as we're growing up, you know, the culture we live in actually becomes like the dominant mirror yeah. for us. Could you talk about that in relation to this? And you talked about how you, you experience chronic illness. And it seems like there's a kind of a correlation in there somehow. Yeah, I think it's, it's true that the cultures that we grow up in, especially in the Western world, are often very divorced from nature, right? We live in a, a world that is dominated by humans in our cultural world. And frankly, you know, humans who are healing from a lot of trauma, from many centuries, if not millennia, of trauma. And so what we see reflected back to us in human culture in the Western world is not very healthy. And so I think a lot of us look into that mirror and end up having beliefs about ourselves that are really false, that are just not accurate to the the wholeness and the the vibrancy and the goodness of who we truly are. And you know, one of the things I write about in the book in, in one of the first chapters is this concept that chronic illness can be a I don't want to say it's a direct result of living in, in a toxic overculture, but that it's part of it, right? And there's this great quote that I have in the book by Gabor Mate, and he says something along the lines of, you know, when we can't say no, our body will say it for us. And you know, he's a, an addiction specialist and has worked with folks all over the spectrum who manifest things like chronic illness and chronic pain. And I think that this is the case. I see this in so many folks who are dealing with, you know, any kind of chronic issue, whether it's physical illness, mental illness, that there's a part of our psyche and our spirit that's that's really saying no. <laughs> that is saying, you know, this system, this culture, this overculture, it doesn't work. This way that we're living where we're so disconnected from really almost every other being on earth and disconnected from ourselves. And from nature and a sort of a more natural way of living that this does not work for us. 
And our bodies are very loud communicators, you know, bless them. They, they will never let us off the hook. Our bodies are constantly saying, yes, this works or no, this does not work. And so from my experience in working with thousands of clients around the world at this point, I've seen this firsthand that our bodies are these benevolent communicators because our bodies are a part of nature, right? We are nature. So our bodies are constantly tuned in and they are like tuning forks. They will tell us what works and what does not. So, you know, they're very much interrelated. This ability to look into the natural mirror of the earth and see yourself, see what works for you, see what brings you alive and healing on all levels. Yeah, it's interesting that you were talking about that body saying no when we don't yet know how to do that for ourselves. And your book is so much about saying yes, yes, yes to life and the natural world and the experience of being part of the world. But first, we have to develop the ability to say no and and develop healthy boundaries. Could you talk about that and also in relation to how it's often very sensitive people who go through these things or at least go through them in a way in which they become aware of the process that they're going through and engage in their own healing and growth process and this development of boundaries and also the kind of paradoxical dynamic of that, of how healthy boundaries actually give us the space to feel safe enough to really open up and connect Mm. with others and, and the world. Yeah. So I, I identify as a highly sensitive person, which was a a term coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron. It's also known as HSP. And it's a physical trait that exists in, you know, upwards of 20% of the human population, I would argue even more, and also in other species around the world. And it's really a nervous system trait. It just means that your nervous system is more sensitive to stimuli, sensory stimuli of all kind. And, you know, I do find a lot of people who are in what I consider kind of this wave of returning to the living world, of looking into alternative ways of living and healing and thinking that a lot of folks who are in that wave are highly sensitive people. And I think that there's a reason for this. You know, Dr. Elaine Aaron talks in her book about how HSPs serve an evolutionary function. And one of those functions is to kind of be like a canary in the coal mine, to be sensitive enough that when things kind of are a little bit out of alignment, we are going to be some of the first ones to feel it, to be like, okay, this is not working. And I, I know this is not working because I'm, I'm very sensitive and my body's having a reaction to this. My psyche's having a reaction to this. And so I you know, want to just send a little love note out to anyone out there who feels like they might be highly sensitive you know you can look more into dr elaine aaron's work if that's something that is pinging for you and you haven't heard of this before because a lot of sensitive people from a young age aren't recognized as being sensitive and especially as being sensitive in a way that's a gift or a physiological trait some people might have been written off as just like you know dramatic or overly sensitive or shy you know, sensitive people tend to have really intense visceral experiences to things like bright lights, loud music, overwhelming crowds. They can be very introverted, though not always. And so 
sometimes sensitive people grow up thinking that there's something wrong with them. And one of the traits of sensitivity is that sensitivity and empathy often go hand in hand. So HSPs tend to be quite empathic. And because they're empathic, it can often be hard to say no. <laughs> because what ends up happening is that you sort of lose your own voice, your own connection to what works for you because you're so over-attuned to other people. Now, the ability to be attuned to other beings is a gift, right? That's one of the things that makes HSPs incredible, you know, communicators, both with other humans, but also with the natural world, with, you know, beings in the unseen, as well as, you know, very creative people. So downloading things from the muses, music, art, poetry, all the things. But what ends up happening often for HSPs is that we sort of lose the ability to understand where our boundaries really are because our whole lives often have been dedicated to being over-attuned to other people in our environment that we lose track of where those boundaries are. And so the first chapter in the book is about learning boundaries through the help of a garden and this understanding that like a beautiful garden, what makes a garden gorgeous is boundaries. So obviously wild spaces are, are beautiful unto their own, but they're not gardens, right? Gardens, by definition, are places where we decide what grows here and what does not. It's like, I say it's like being given a small corner of the canvas of the earth and being invited to create. And so if we want a beautiful garden, we have to be willing to like prune and weed and cull. And the same is true for our inner gardens, like the gardens of our lives. One of the things I say in the book is, you know, our lives are gardens and we decide what gets to grow in them. And I really think that this chapter, this foundational invitation is so important to learn how to say no, to learn how to draw boundaries, because ultimately when we learn how to draw a boundary, what we're saying is, I recognize that I have a self, that I've been given a self in this lifetime, and this self is important, that I am deserving of you know, comfort and aliveness and nourishment and, you know, all the things that make it possible for me to thrive, I deserve those things. And so really the, the foundation of this journey of learning self-compassion with the help of the natural world and this self-compassion that ultimately opens the gateway to understanding our gifts, it begins with learning how to hold boundaries so that we can experience having a self. You know, who is this self that that desires certain things and, you know, doesn't want other things and, you know, has its own unique inner garden and landscape. And how can I tend that self and learning how to say no and draw boundaries is really the beginning. And you see this when, you know, we're children, you know, when kids first really start to develop an awareness of themselves as separate entities, also known as the terrible twos, <laughs> that is when the no's come on board really strong. So, children say no to all kinds of things just because they've discovered that they can say no. And that's a really important psychological process of differentiation of realizing like I am a self, I actually am a separate being who's like here to explore what that means to have a self. And so, you know, this is something we often need to keep learning as we get older, especially when we're enculturated that saying no, or holding a boundary is not something that is acceptable in our family or our community. So often we have to return to this lesson when we're older. Mm, I love that. The terrible twos and the wonderful no's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> so earlier you said the earth wants us to do this work. Talk about 
why this growth and development is so important to the earth? You know, when we are like integrated people, you know, when we really are resourced in self-acceptance and self-compassion, you know, we become good citizens of the world. There's all kinds of research out there that show that, you know, higher levels of self-acceptance, self-esteem, self-compassion lead to all kinds of amazing benefits, including like greater empathy for others, greater creativity, greater generosity. So learning these ways of coming home to ourselves, it's not selfish. It is actually what enables us to become like really good citizens on this planet. And, you know, when I look at, you know, especially the the history of the world the past thousands of years, what I see and what a lot of people will remark upon is sort of this self-centeredness, this egoism, this narcissism, right? And I think when people who are sensitive see that, they think, okay, well, I really shouldn't focus on myself because I don't want to add to this like wound of narcissism in our world, right? But it's actually the opposite. You know, narcissism at its core, it's not actually being full of one's life force and self-worth. It's a lack. It's a wound. It's actually an inability to really ground in self-love. And because there's that lack, then there's this overcompensation, right, of constantly needing affirmation from outside of themselves to feel worthy, to feel that they belong. And so I would argue, and, and what I argue in the book, is that the central wound at the center of our culture that has caused really just so much blindness and what some people might call narcissistic behavior in terms of, you know, I take these resources and not thinking about the wider world, maybe not even thinking about other humans. But the central wound is this disconnection. It's this disconnection from being able to see and value ourselves as individuals and then see and value the world around us. So it it always begins on a personal level, right? It's like if we're really grounded in true self-love and self-acceptance, then naturally it casts everything in the world in that same light. You think, okay, if I am someone who's this worthy of love and belonging, then so is every being on the planet, you know? And, And if I'm worthy of having these boundaries, then every being has boundaries and I'm here to learn how to respect them. So I think the earth is very invested in our journeys of returning to this place of self-integration and self-compassion because it is how we heal. This wound that has caused so much destruction on our planet and so much destruction in the human psyche, it's how we heal that wound. And really where we're at in the health of our species is directly affecting the earth, right? And I think that as part of nature, right, it's like, the greater gestalt of the consciousness of nature is like ready to heal this part of themselves. We are a part of nature. And so just like in psychology, we all have parts, different parts, you know, like the inner child is a part and the inner mother is a part. Well, we are a part of nature. And it's like the consciousness of nature is like, okay, I'm ready to heal this, (laughs) this part of myself now. And how I heal this part is by recognizing that it exists And by having compassion for it and seeing that there are gifts there. And so we are fulfilling our mission here on the planet by going through this process of really learning self-acceptance and self-love. And there's a very porous boundary between our inner, you know, what's going on inside of us and our outer environment. And because of that, 
they tend to affect and influence each other in very mysterious ways. And particularly in our culture, we have become desensitized from being at all aware of that interrelationship. And I love your definition of ecology. Yeah, I define ecology as the relationship between living beings and the living world. And so, you know, a, a given ecology is all about the interlocking relationships in that landscape. And as humans living on the landscape, we are a part of that ecology. I think we often look at ecology as something separate from humans. It's something we study. It's something we observe without realizing that we are a part of that ecology. You know, we naturally affect the world just by walking through it, literally just by breathing and being in that landscape. We are affecting that landscape. And I think that, you know, in indigenous cultures around the world, this understanding of ecology is at the basis of their culture, their wisdom traditions. And that's the reason why they have survived for as long as they have, because this is really the truth of reality, right? That we are part and parcel of an ecology. And, you know, this is the interesting thing about this work, right? It's that on some level, we need to both recognize that we have this distinct individual self and recognize that this distinct individual self is a part of everything else, that we are here and in constant relationship with the environment around us. And so to really, you know, ask yourself, in what ways can I be a helping part of this ecology first by really learning how to see and, and value my inner landscape, you know, the gifts that I naturally bring just by being here. And, you know, this was something I talk about in the book when I was little, I was someone who would zone out a lot. Like I, I would just kind of flit off into my own world. And often people would, you know, do that thing where they wave their hand in front of your face and be like earth to Asia. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, I was just like <laughs> off in my own experience. And, and I really learned to have a lot of shame around that, like, that it's like a shameful thing to be in your own world. You know, like this idea that there's like one true world and you would be remiss if you didn't join it. And it was really through interacting with nature and different ecologies here on this planet that I realized, oh, like we are all here to be in our own worlds because our own inner worlds is what makes up this like beautiful cacophonous whole. And that, you know, an ecology is like worlds meeting. And so, you know, it wouldn't make any sense to tell the turtle or the oak tree, like, don't be in your own world. Like, you know, be in this other world. Like they are completely embodied in their own experience of the world. And it is through that embodiment in their own experience that they can be a part of an ecology, which is a relationship, right? True relationship is the relating between, you know, one being and another. And so to be, become a part of an ecology, like a healing part of an ecology, I think it's essential to return to your own inner world because that's how we really begin to nourish all worlds. And that reminds me of when you first moved to Southern Appalachia and you connected with a group of punkish mm -hmm. earth activists who thought that you were way too naive in your way of being. And yet, fairly quickly, they all fell in love with you because of your authenticity and your, your openness and willingness to be totally vulnerable as you were. 
Yeah. I, <laughs> so I had, yeah, I'd moved from New York city down to the mountains here in Southern Appalachia and somehow ended up like, you know, becoming friends with folks who lived in this punk house. They were like anarchist punks. They're still some of my best friends. And, but they lived like a completely different way of life than I had ever experienced. You know, they would go out and find animals that had been killed on the road and process them for food. They did stick and poke tattoos and dumpster dough for food. And like, I, you know, here I'm coming from like living this sort of like New York lifestyle with, you know, shopping and fashions and, you know, just a little bit more mainstream. And so I came in and at first was like, you know, I remember kind of getting the side eye there, like, who is this like normie girl who's <laughs> <was> like now <laughs> hanging out at the punk house? You know, I like had my like pristine vintage dresses, <laughs> all the things. And, you know, at first I, I remember being like, you know, really intimidated, like very intimidated. Like this is a whole world I know nothing about. And then I realized though, at some point I was like, you know, it's not going to work for me to just try to be like them because, you know, it's not necessarily who I am. It was like, at one point, you know, I remember someone referred to that punk house as Brown Town because like everyone only wore brown, like black and brown was like the palette, you know, and mostly because they didn't have a washing machine. So they just like never cleaned their clothes. <laughs> so everything just like defaulted to brown, you know, and like I'm in here with like the bright colors and the floral pads, you know. And I was like, you know, that's never going to be me. You know, it's just not going to be me. But I can be me. I can be 100% me. And so, you know, I started doing things like I would, you know, bring over party hats if it was someone's birthday and like, you know, put up lights for the holidays. And, and I just, it was like my, I just decided like, you know what, I'm just, instead of trying to like fit into this thing, I'm just going to turn my light up like all the way, like just be authentically myself. And if they dig it, they dig it. And if they don't, they don't. And it was this beautiful experience because like, even though I didn't like fit into that world in a certain way, just by being my full self, I ended up really developing some of the deepest friendships of my life. Because I really think that when we are like just willing to be our full selves, it gives everyone else permission to do that too. And, you know, I talked in the book about how they would do things and I would, I would be like, I don't know what that is. Tell me about that. You know, instead of being like pretending that I knew or, getting defensive that I didn't know that thing I'd be like I don't even know what that means like what does that mean tell me about that and you know it was really through like my willingness to kind of just be vulnerable to be like yeah I don't know any of those things and I'm kind of a babe in the woods and like cool like let's meet on that level like I'm I'm willing to be in that space and and it was just yeah just such a beautiful experience looking back to just see how all these friendships and connections flowered and you know for as long as I can remember I've had people telling me you know things that I'm like gullible or you know naive and I think it's really it's I realize at some point I'm like this is actually a choice that I'm making like I'm I'm making a choice over and over again to like still believe in possibilities to trust to walk in a state of like innocence in this world like it, it is a choice right because we all have really hard things that happen to us in our life. And, you know, there's always that possibility to sort of shut that part of you down to develop like a really thick wall. And there's always the possibility to say, you know what, like, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to let myself return to this place of vulnerability of, you know, blessed naivete of like, I'm gonna believe in the good things coming. 
And I think that that state of being is really infectious. And instead of something that we should feel like ashamed of, our softness, our vulnerability, it's something we should celebrate. And, you know, I quote several times in the book, Brene Brown, because her work with vulnerability and the realization that vulnerability is actually the bravest thing you can do is just, I mean, it's just so life-changing and and she's such a pioneer in that realm. But I think it, it bears repeating, you know, this idea that like our vulnerability and our willingness to be vulnerable, like is the bravest thing that we could ever do. And I think in terms of, you know, earth healing and personal healing, the same is true. You know, the, the moment that we think we know everything is kind of the moment we stop being open for growth and healing. And I think that this world, this earth really loves and values us as the vulnerable, valuable beings that we are. Mm, that's so beautiful. So there's another relationship with the world that we have that exists on the imaginal level. So I would love for you to talk about dreaming and how dreaming is a direct line to that part of ourselves that is helping to dream our lives and this world into existence and how everything is actually dreaming itself into being and all together we all dream everything into being and how we can become even more open or open ourselves even more into being a conscious part of that process. Yeah, I've always been a very potent dreamer, like nighttime dreams, but also daydreams, as I just mentioned. <laughs> I'm definitely a daydreamer. And, you know, when I was little, both my parents are psychologists. So that's sort of the background that I grew up around. And so, you know, from a psychological lens, like I understood that dreams were these, you know, portals into understanding the unconscious. But what I didn't really understand until I got older was that dreams are not just like the firings of our unconscious mind being made conscious, that dreaming is actually a gateway into a wider experience. So when we are asleep and dreaming, that is actually our consciousness, our wider self going on a journey, slipping the confines of the physical world to have an experience in non-physical reality. And dreams are sort of the stories that we bring back from those experiences. And, you know, you look around the world at many different traditional cultures, there is this concept that dreaming was actually an important source of wisdom and healing and a gateway to connect with the unseen world, including the ancestors. Like this is foundational to a lot of wisdom practices around the world. So I am not the first one to come up with this. But when I sort of came to this realization it just made a lot of sense to me that my dreams were more than just my subconscious mind trying to figure things out, that it was actually these wider experiences that I was having. And it accounted for things like, for example, the fact that I would sometimes meet loved ones who'd passed on in my dreams and they would give me wisdom or, you know, I would go around the world and I would visit a place on the earth and feel like I had a true experience in that place, a place that I had never visited before in this body, in this lifetime. And at one point, I studied with dream teacher Robert Moss, and he was a big influence in my life. And he talks about these ideas that dreams are really these remembrances we bring back from an experience in wider reality. And on an ecological level, dreaming is something that's inherent to this earth. 
And, you know, in the Aboriginal, different Aboriginal traditions of Australia, of which there are many, many different Aboriginal cultures, you know, in the Western world, we have this term called the dream time, and it's called a lot of different things in different Aboriginal cultures. And it's very complex, like it's a whole cosmological system, including, you know, laws and creation stories. So I can't do the whole concept in its wholeness justice here, but I will say that one of the things that we've learned in Western culture from communicating with, you know, wisdom keepers and Aboriginal cultures about the dream time is this concept that, you know, every being is dreaming and that dreaming is really another word for creation and existence coming into form. And so when we dream at night or when we daydream during the day, it is a form of creation. It is our consciousness working to actually create reality. And I think that from this level of understanding, like our own personal dreams and this ability to dream, we can start to see this world as a collection of dreamers who we all came here to co-create together, to dream together this world into being. And one of the things that I like to say is that we came here to help fulfill the dream of the earth. So I use the pronoun she, her for the earth because that resonates for me. But I really see the earth as like an archangel, like the consciousness of our planet is an archangel. And so much, much, much wiser (laughs) and more evolved than we are in our own consciousness. And we came here on this planet to learn and grow personally, of course, but we also can be a part of the earth's wider dream. And the way that we connect into that in part is through our own dreams, because we are, we are part of nature and dreaming ourselves into being. And so, you know, just even the, the concept of tuning into one's dreams, whether they be your daydreams or imaginations or your nighttime dreams and the idea that this could be a direct line of communication, not only with your wider self, the part of you that is dreaming yourself into existence, but with the wider consciousness of the earth, because ultimately we are here to be a part of her wider dream. I absolutely love that. And at the same time, I know that in our culture, that is such a foreign concept that's very difficult for many people to wrap their minds around. And there's another wonderful line from your book where you say, what is real is not some objective truth, but the lived experience of what is shared in the space between subjects. And that space between subjects is not just the space that we engage in in the outer world, but on many other different levels. Could you talk more about that? When I was little, I really struggled with objective truths. (laughs) Like, I remember things like objective subjects, like math, where there was one answer. I was like, I don't understand this. (laughs) And in the book, I talk about how I've always been a very voracious reader. And yet when I was in like fifth grade or something, I almost failed like the statewide reading test. And, you know, my mom was like, what is this? You know, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. She's this voracious reader. And thankfully, I I had a, a teacher at the time who like was willing to go back and like look at the test and was like, yeah, you know, her answers weren't wrong. She just saw the prompt and use it as like an invitation to for creative writing. And it was like, I couldn't wrap my mind around the concept that they were asking for one answer, you know, and 
So I think that this is true for a lot of children. And then we are sort of enculturated into this overculture where there's this idea of the objective truth, you know, that there is one truth to uncover. And that truth is like outside of your experience, you know, like you could have an experience that is not the truth. And yet, you know, this way of thinking is like relatively new here on our planet. And even though it's sort of at the bedrock of Western culture, it is not at the bedrock of many other cultures on this planet. And if you look at, you know, a lot of different indigenous knowledge systems, the exact opposite is true, that there is no one objective truth, that there is a multitude of truths, like what you experience is what you experience. So that that is true. And that all of reality is subjective that we cannot know an objective truth. And to me, when I learned about this, I was like, oh, this completely makes total sense to me because we cannot know an objective truth because we are inside of a subjective experience all the time, right? Like I cannot say what a truth is outside of a relationship because everything on earth is relational. Everything on earth is one subject relating to another subject, one self, one person relating to another person whether that person's human or deer or turtle or creek. And so the idea that there would be one objective truth outside of a subjective experience to me at this point is like laughable because we cannot take ourselves out of the experiment. And, you know, in quantum physics now we've seen this play out that the person who is running the experiment influences the experiment. And this is just true on every level in our world. And so I find it very healing actually to come back to this realization that, oh, okay, like what reality is, is subjective and we are having these subject to subject experiences all the time and that everything is relational, that there is not one isolated truth that's like sitting floating in space by itself, that like all these things are in relationship with one another and that, you know, the truth of something is something we arrive at together. It's like a consensus experience of reporting back like well this is my experience and then someone reporting this is my experience and like how can we reach like a consensus shared reality from our personal experiences which have their own truth to them right because that is what we experienced and I think children are naturally really good at this like you know I'm a new mother so I'm just starting this journey I have a six-month-old But, you know, I can already see with her experience with the world that it's like she sees everything as a subject to her. Like there's there's no object, you know, like she treats me the same way, you know, she might treat one of her toys, you know, like touches them the same way, interacts in the same way. You know, it's really a learned thing, a learned perspective to be like, you know, this is this is an object versus this is a human and you treat them differently. And I think that our focus on objectivity makes sense in a culture where we have the concept of this is animate and alive and this is not. And that is also a very new way of looking at things. I think if we look at any culture around the world and you go back far enough, we all live from this perspective that you know, I would call animism, this idea that the world is alive and sentient and all of existence is animated by this reality and their own subjectivity. And so, of course, in a culture that enshrines objectivity, we're going to see the world in terms of objects. We're going to see 
we're going to draw this distinction or this difference. Like this is, this is a person, this is something that's alive and this is inanimate and not alive and an object. And that division has caused so much harm on our planet to see things that way. And how different would our relationship to reality be if we saw all of this world and everything in existence as a subject in their own story. And that story has its own truth to it. And our, our blessing really like the gift that we have is to be able to meet that subject in their story and share stories together. Mm -hmm. And you also say how the imaginal makes us stronger, more complex and resilient and able to dream new worlds and new ways of being, which is particularly important at this time, since as a world, we're in this time of deep metamorphosis. And you also say that what we see falling apart, you know, seeing the world falling apart is an indicator that it's time for us to actually engage more deeply in this imaginal process, very much like the way a caterpillar goes through the metamorphosis into a butterfly. I love that metaphor so much. And I love that you brought in the word metamorphosis here because it's so true. You know, people look around and they think, oh, the world's falling apart. And there's another way to, to look at that, right? That the world is going through a metamorphosis. And when I learned about what actually happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, everything clicked into place with me. So when a caterpillar crawls into the cocoon, its entire body turns to like soupy liquid, like everything completely dissolves and falls apart. And there are cells in the caterpillar's body that scientists have named imaginal cells. And these imaginal cells, they hold the blueprint for the butterfly that will emerge out of this like DNA soup. But what's really interesting is that when these cells start activating, the immune system of the caterpillar will attack them because it doesn't recognize these cells in this new form that's coming into being. And of course, you know, eventually those cells and the, the blueprint that they hold, you know, they're able to fulfill their mission and the immune system of the caterpillar is able to recognize, okay, this is actually something I'm, I'm designed to do. But I think it's such a beautiful and important metaphor for understanding where we're at right now on the earth and, and in our own personal journeys that when we go through deep metamorphosis, there is going to be a part of us that is like scared of this. That's like, stop this. I don't recognize this. You know, I'm, I want to attack my own system and the way that it's transforming. And we see this like writ large in human culture right now. And just all the reactionary backsliding that is occurring around the world. And it's a part of our immune system that goes like, this is scary. I don't recognize this. This is scary. And I want to stop this from happening. And yet those imaginal cells, they always went out because that's our destiny. That's the blueprint. And so I love that they named them imaginal cells because it, it's true. It's like using our imagination and our, our power as dreamers to like really envision something different is how we bring that new world into being. Like we, we're meant to be a part of that new world coming into being through using the incredible power of our imagination. So for anyone out there who identifies as a dreamer, I'm like, please keep dreaming, you know, please keep envisioning, please keep creating and tapping into your inspiration because those imaginal cells is what will help us through this metamorphosis. I love that. And you refer to the earth as like an archangel. 
And you also speak of us as being like angels in this world every time we are brave enough to be ourselves and to and to go through that metamorphic process of blooming into who we most truly are. I love the definition of the word angels, messenger. That's what the word originally meant. And so I see this when people are willing to go on this big journey, really, of integration, of returning to the self, of learning self-compassion, that we do become messengers. We become messengers that then pass that healing on. So it's like you become an angel in this world because you've gone through this powerful journey of self-reckoning and self-returning. And we need as many angels as we can get in this world right now. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I really like that you present in the book was you talked about how in our culture, we have a misunderstanding of the term quantum leap, that we usually think of it as being a giant leap. But you say that it's actually a tiny little shift. And you also wrote about that in the context of drop dosages and how we have a homeopathic effect upon the planet and everything. And that there's actually great power in that kind of tiny shift and tiny effect. Yeah, I for a long time would use the term quantum leap. And in my head, I always thought like it's like a light year leap. (laughs) And it's not, you know, in quantum physics, a quantum leap is a tiny infinitesimal shift. But when this like infinitesimal shift happens, it changes like the whole nature of the atom. So, you know, it's like on this level of thinking, we often assume that if we want to see big change happen in our lives or in this planet, like we have to take a huge leap. And, you know, sometimes that is what's being asked of us. But I think most often we're being asked to take a quantum leap. These small shifts in perception and healing and that when we make these small little shifts, that then we literally change the nature of reality. And I think it's very comforting to realize that, you know, we can affect the world just by making these small, subtle shifts within our being. And, you know, one of the things that I've loved for a long time and I've worked with and taught other folks about are flower essences. So flower essences are, you know, vibrational remedies similar to homeopathics, where it's a highly dilute form of plant medicine that's made by floating flowers in water underneath sunlight and then diluting that water. And one of the things that came up for me once, I was teaching a retreat, and I had people from all over the world come for this retreat. And one person at the retreat was going back to where she lived in middle America and the community that she lived in, something like flower essences were like completely unheard of. (laughs) And she was saying to me, like, I'm feeling worried about going back into this community where it's like everything I've been opening to and exploring is like, just not even on the radar. I'm afraid how people are going to react to me. And I had kind of this download that came through when I was speaking to her that really touched me. And I know it really meant a lot to her, which is this concept that like we and she, you know, our flower essences in a well, it's like, you don't need to go and like, you know, shout from the mountaintops, everything you've been learning, just her going back into her community and being and embodying who she is now in the full blossom of her potential and her, you know, self love and her 
enthusiasm for life, that is like dropping a flower essence in the well. When you put that one drop in the well, it changes the whole composition, the whole energetic composition of that well. And the same can be said for us, like in our individual communities and in the world at large, that you know, really just by being yourself, it is infectious in this way, in the most positive way. <laughs> it's, you know, you become this homeopathic for the earth. And guarantee you, you felt this both when you've been really in a mode in your life, a time in your life where you really felt centered and excited about yourself in your life, that it sort of ripples out that other people get excited about themselves and their lives. And you've probably also felt it when you've been around someone who's just like really solid in themselves and sort of like vibrating with this like fulfillment and like positive excitement about the journey of their lives. It is intoxicating to be around. It's like, you just want to keep being around those people, especially if you're not in that mode at that moment. You're like, I really need this medicine. So I do think that it makes a difference. You know, and a lot of my book is kind of about this concept, like these interior journeys, the journey of the self, like it does have a big impact on this planet. Like it is the flower essence in the well that changes the whole composition of the world. So it is not only worthy, it is really precious and powerful to go on this journey. So at this point in our history as a species, many of us are experiencing great trauma in the face of what's happening in the world around us. And it's making it especially difficult to actually be able to relax into who we are as we're experiencing the disruption and the kind of mirrored effect of disruption within ourselves that we're seeing around us. So how do we relax back into our own presence and our own sense of wholeness and heal or recover ourselves from that experience of trauma? I think you nailed something important when you talked about the relax part, <laughs> because one of the unseen components in my book, but something that's so essential is just this concept of like our nervous systems, you know, our nervous systems are kind of in this constant state of fight, flight, or freeze right now because of the backlog of trauma and so the continuing trauma of what is happening in this world, you know, what happens to our bodies, what's happening to the body of the earth. and you know, the goal with healing from trauma is just to become present. And this is something that I didn't fully understand until I started my own therapeutic journey, going to see a therapist that, you know, the goal of, of healing from trauma is it's not to go back in the past and change what happened because that's not possible, right? It is literally just to become present with what is that when we become present in this moment, that's when things start to heal. You know, by definition, trauma is not an event that happened in the past. It is a reverberation that is still happening inside of us now. But what happens with this reverberation is that we're often either anxiously projecting ourselves into the future and wanting to avoid a similar situation, or we're going back into the past and we're stuck again and again and again in that loop of that event that happened in the past or series of events. And yet, you know, on a nervous system level, when we get present in our lives and present with what we're feeling, present in the moment, 
it's like that ball starts to untangle itself, which is revolutionary to me, really. When I started therapy, I'm like, really? That's it? That's the whole, the whole goal is just to become present and then things start healing themselves. And, you know, in my book, I talk about, you know, one of these ways of really becoming present is to be able to recognize the naturalness of trauma and the beauty that has resulted from our own resilient response to what it is that we have experienced. So I use the example of the seasons here on our planet, you know, with, with the exception of like a narrow band around the equator, most of our earth experiences seasons and seasonality. And yet that would not have happened on our planet if it wasn't for this huge collision really early on in our planet's formation with this other body called Thea. And this huge collision like completely knocked our planet off its axis and its rotation. And that seems like that would be a really bad thing, right? But because we were knocked off that axis, we actually created what now is the seasons through the way we tip towards and away from the sun. And we made more of the earth inhabitable. And, you know, the beauty and the diversity of the seasons and just all the gorgeousness that that has brought to our planet. You think about the changing colors of fall and the white blankets of wintertime and the, the ephemerals of spring and the great profusion of summer. Like none of these things would have been possible without that initial impact. And so to me, it's become a really beloved metaphor, especially when I start to feel like the trauma that I'm carrying is just a damaging force in my life and my psyche. But to remember that that trauma then, that thing that knocked me so far off my course, that my ability to respond to it and the way I've learned how to respond to it, my resiliency and that ability to heal, that that has caused so much beauty in my life. And I can guarantee you, I would not be doing this work right now if it wasn't for my own, you know, specific traumas that I've experienced. Caroline Casey calls it our beautiful, dangerous assignment, <laughs> which I absolutely adore. And, you know, without my own beautiful, dangerous assignments, I would not be here talking to you right now. I would not have written this book. And you see that throughout the throughout the world, you know, in so many humans on this planet, the incredible things they're creating are coming out of their own process of healing and meeting what has occurred in their life with resiliency. And just by being tuned into the earth, by giving yourself permission to take the time to do things like go for a long walk and just notice you know, notice what's different today versus yesterday. Maybe a new leaf unfurled or, you know, maybe the wind feels a little different. The sky looks different. Just by noticing those things, we come into the present moment, which is where all healing happens. And we also tune into the beauty of what is present. And that in of itself is healing. So, you know, it sounds simplistic, but there's a reason why, you know, nature therapy is such an effective form of therapy because it, it really does bring us into the present moment, which is, you know, when a lot of these balls start to untangle themselves. And I also think just being with nature always shows us that another way is possible. So if it starts to feel like all the options are shutting down or like the trauma in the world is too great, like how are we ever going to overcome this? Just go for a walk outside and look at the resiliency of of the trees and the squirrels running from branch to branch and the, the nuts dropping and the dandelions coming up through the cracks in the pavement. And you will remember that there is 
always still so much possibility and that we've each been given our own beautiful, dangerous assignments to become a part of really feeding that possibility here on the planet. I absolutely love that. But at the same time, we're getting bombarded with imagery and prognostications of how we're heading towards this sixth major extinction of life on the planet, as well as the very likelihood of our own extinction. How do you reconcile that? And also, I can see how some people might say, you know, it's very naive to say, well, just go for a walk in nature and feel the blessings of what's always there when we're living in the face of this terrible disruption and death that's occurring in the world all around us. Yeah, well, let me respond to that one first, because that is so dear to my heart, because for a long time, I really struggled with that. You know, this sense of like, I need to do something to affect change. And, you know, what that looked like for me was being really involved in activism and organizing. And I completely burnt myself out. And so for me, what was playing on an unconscious level was in order to create change on this planet, I basically need to override my own nervous system to push past my limits, right? To keep going even when I'm exhausted, to you know, deny myself the time that I need to heal and resource myself because I don't deserve that time when, you know, all this catastrophe is happening. And yet the reality is that these traumas, these human perpetrated traumas on the planet come out of a nervous system that is in a state of trauma and fight or flight. That is how, you know, for example, you know, heads of corporations can make the decision to just go ahead and pour that trash in the ocean, right? Because they're totally disconnected from that, you know, heart-to-heart presence experience of interacting with the living world because of their own trauma, because there's a level in which their system is in fight, flight, or freeze. And so we cannot affect change in the world by defaulting to that same place in our nervous systems. It's just not how it works. And so it might seem selfish or naive to be like taking a walk in nature to resource myself is healing for the planet. But the reality is this is how we shift back into this place in our nervous system where expansion is possible, where connection is possible, where imagination is possible, where relationship, true relationship is possible. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the thing, it's like the same thing that caused the problem is not the same thing that's going to heal it. You know, we can't use the same tools. And so resourcing yourself in nature and, and embarking upon self-healing is essential for changing the program. This is how we change the program. And it is true, of course, that we are in this huge wave of extinction right now. And I think it's very important to leave space for the grief of that and the pain of that. It's an important place to touch into. It's really the first place. It's like the first palace we need to move through is that place of grief and pain. And it doesn't mean you move through it and then you're done feeling that. It's a constant return to feel that. And the kind of change and innovation that really arises to change the world doesn't arise out of this frozen state in our nervous system, which grief can often feel like, like we're just frozen, right? It arrives out of this expansive state of feeling safe, in our activation and our ability to move forward. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing where we need to hold both. 
And that's complex, especially when we live in a very black and white culture where it's like you're either this or that, you know, like you can in one hand, like hold space for you to take time out, to go for a walk, to be in your healing. And then in the other hand, hold the space of, and I'm here to be an active agent for change in the world. And I'm deeply grieving, you know, what is happening here on this planet. And, you know, one of the things that I return to often when I sort of get mired in ecological grief and mire is a good word because it often freezes me. Like I feel like I cannot move forward is I remember that this earth, as I said before, is, is like an archangel and she is so much wiser than we are in our individual consciousness. And we are a part of her. And so this place of self-hatred that I think humans, especially who are very tuned into the environment can land in this self-hatred of themselves, of humanity in general, that this self-hatred actually doesn't make sense on a certain level because we are nature. And in some ways we are no different than, for example, like, you know, a volcano that explodes and covers most of the planet with ash or blocks out the sun and causes a mass extinction event or a meteorite that comes and causes a mass extinction event. You know, to think that we're different than that actually, I think is a form of like egoism. We're not, you know, we are the same and that we are a natural event that is occurring, that we are part of nature and nature's psyche and overall consciousness. And so there is, and I take comfort in this and perhaps other people might, this idea that there is a wider plan, that the earth has a wider plan, which doesn't mean that we aren't here to be agents of change. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't meet this time with just the utmost of our passion and creativity and ability. But it does mean that defaulting to hopelessness and despair that it prevents ability to actually be a part of this dream and this healing and whatever this metamorphosis is, I cannot pretend to know what exactly it is or, you know, what this big dream is that we're a part of that the earth is holding at the center of her heart. But I do know that the way we meet that is by meeting our own heart first. Thank you so much for addressing all of that. And continuing in that vein, you say that it's not for us to know how all of this will unfold or come into being, but that our task is to be it by embodying the process as it happens, as the world rebirths itself or herself in real time. This is, we are in the midst of what I'd like to call a rebirth. And you know, I, I say in the last chapter of the book that we are midwives for this dying world. And this world that is asking to be reborn and, you know, to really see ourselves in that way that we, you know, most of us probably from the time we were little really had this awareness. You know, I remember learning when I was little about the extinction of the whales and it just pierced me in this way where I just could not, I could not get over it. I could not put this fact aside. You know, it really mobilized me to like raise money for, you know, conservation and, you know, tell everyone that I could about this. And I think most of us have some sort of story like that of realizing whether it's seeing, you know, where we used to play in a field be turned into a strip mall or becoming aware of the plight of the honeybees. Like we are the children of, you know, this culture where we're realizing like so much is dying, you know, 
And yet we are here to be agents of change and midwives for a new world that's being born. And, you know, the the mirror that exists in this last chapter of the book is this mirror of this mushroom called reishi. And, you know, reishi is a mushroom that we have some of the longest recorded history of use thousands of years in the East, in China. And it's called the immortality mushroom. And it has all these amazing, like, panacea of health benefits for the physical body. But it's also called the immortality mushroom in part because it's considered to be a Shen expander, which in Chinese medicine, our Shen is like our individual light. It's like the part of our soul that comes here to be embodied in this experience. And Reishi helps us connect back into our wider selves, our wider light, you know, that wider plan. And, you know, mushrooms in general are emblems of this fact that death feeds new life, that there's this ability to, you know, compost, compost all this loss and death and turn it into this metamorphosis, into a new world, a new way of being. And, you know, I I take comfort too in, in just the remembrance that, you know, once fungi were very large upon this planet, so fungi predate plants. And so, you know, really fungi are, were essential to the development of plants and therefore the development of animals and mammals. And so at one point in time, they were literally like, our world was covered with like fungi trees, basically. They were like these huge fungal structures. And this fungi knew how to turn, you know, what was sort of just bare mineral into life, into life as we know it. And so we are in this way of thinking, like we are, we can be like mushrooms in this world, like this force of turning what seems like it's in decay into the compost that feeds new life on this planet. And I just love this concept that like our blooming, and we think of our own personal blooming and we often envision a flower but mushrooms are their own kinds of blooms. Like literally mushrooms are the fruiting bodies, the flowers of the mycelium that runs unseen underneath our world. And so there's this level on which us coming into our own individual bloomings in our lifetime, you know, the bloomings of who we are and our gifts and, and what's possible for us that this blooming is actually maybe a little bit more like a reishi mushroom than it is a flower that we have through that discovery, that self-discovery we come into our ability to alchemize what is dying, to help transform it into the compost that will nourish the new world that's coming into being. And I think a lot of people who are in touch with their own selves and in touch with nature can feel that potential here right now, that it's like, you know, this is not just the end, this is the beginning. And you look at many different wisdom traditions around the world, and we see that, you know, cosmologically speaking, this is always how it goes, right? Everything moves in a circle and death just opens up into a new life, a new wheel on that cycle. And I can't pretend to know what that looks like, but I know that we are in a very special time in terms of being able to witness part of this huge transformation and be a part of this metamorphosis coming into being. I'm so glad you brought that up and talked about that. You touched on this earlier, but I think it bears repeating. In the book, you write that no matter how bad we might feel, we are already forgiven for anything we could have ever done, that the earth has already unconditionally forgiven us. 
This was something I had a, a really powerful moment that I write about where I was sitting by a bank of willows. And this was actually the moment that the whole awareness of what the book was about, like finally crystallized. I had been writing drafts for years and this was really when I realized what the whole book was about. And I was struggling that day. I was teaching at a, a large gathering and my nervous system was completely blown out. I was super overwhelmed. I pretty much like ran away to the river and was just like really mired in self-judgment and also like judgment around like our species, you know, thinking like this sense of like, we're unforgivable, you know, like what has happened? And I heard this message coming from sitting with these willows, just this concept that, you know, forgiveness is a healing force in this world. And that when we struggle to forgive ourselves, you know, or we linger in, in unforgiveness, that that's an impediment to growth. And if being in the state of resentment or grudge holding is an impediment to growth, then it naturally follows that the earth already forgives us because the earth is deeply invested in growth. The earth just wants to see new forms of diversity and abundance and life come into being. So why would the earth ever hold a grudge against us as humans if this is the truth right and it was just this profound like benediction is how it felt of the willows saying to me you are already forgiven you're forgiven for everything you've ever done everything you ever could do you're forgiven personally you're forgiven as a species as a, as a member of the human race like you are forgiven and now from this place of being forgiven now what will you do you know and I think that it's such a different way of operating. If we're operating from this place of shame, there's only so much, right, that we can imagine or bring into being. But if we're operating from this place of having been forgiven, of realizing that, you know, it's like that forgiveness is already in place because the earth is saying, like, there is nothing I won't give you in terms of, like, benevolence and life force so that you can create more benevolence and life force on this planet like you are already forgiven in this way and now from this place of really feeling and understanding that you are forgiven now what will you create and I guarantee you what you create from that space of knowing that the earth holds and embraces you and already forgives you that that's when you really can access so much of what is the human potential which is profound and I think that this is why we were created and why we're still here and why I think the earth has an investment in humans still being around. You know, I don't think it's a given by a long stretch. I think that that's still being negotiated, you know, like whether or not nature in this form known as human beings will continue to evolve on this planet. But I do think that the earth is like invested in us as one of her creations because there is so much potential in the human consciousness that I really I really believe and we have seen throughout different cycles in our history as humans on this planet that we have the ability to actually create more abundance, to create more diversity, to create more relationships and more connection and more beauty. And that is why we're here. And so they're saying you are forgiven. So you can return to this like primary state of realizing like the potential to create more beauty on this planet. Like join me in creating more beauty on this planet. And I think that that is the way forward for humanity. That is the way that, you know, if, if we're able to tune into that, that is the way that we can continue to evolve and be on this planet and ultimately make that dream, that dream that is at the center of the earth, a reality. That is so gorgeous.
Could you tell us about some of your courses and resources you offer and how people can find out more about your work? So I have a series of courses on my website. If folks are interested, I have like single courses that are pretty inexpensive. And then I have longer programs as well, like my intuitive plant medicine program, which is specifically about learning how to communicate with the living world and really be someone who can receive these messages yourself and work with the healing of the planet and really start to see your gifts because that's what the earth is always reflecting back to us. It's like the gifts that you carry that you are here to bring to this planet. So those courses are there if anyone's interested. There's also on my website, which is onewillowapothecaries.com. That's where I have my apothecary and my courses. But there's also, if anyone's interested, a free quiz to learn about your healing archetypes. So I have noticed throughout my work that there are five key archetypes that people tend to come here to embody in this lifetime. And so that's a free quiz. And then there's a free class that's associated with that that can help you go deeper into whatever that archetype is. And we've had like hundreds of thousands of people now take this quiz and have really profound experiences with it. So I've seen it in in real time become something that like really resonates with people and helps folks. So that's there if anyone's interested. And of course, my book is available through the website. You're, you know, you can purchase the book through the website, but really it's available anywhere that books are sold. And then I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube under my name, which is Asia Suler. Asia Suler, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has just been such a rich conversation. I feel so honored to be on your show and to be connecting with like the amazing folks in your audience. So I'm just very grateful for this opportunity. My guest has been Asia Suler. She's a writer, teacher, earth intuitive, and ecological philosopher who has guided over 20,000 students all over the world through her immersive online programs in herbalism, animism, ancestral healing, and earth-centered personal growth, where she helps people embrace their own unique medicine through a joyful engagement with the natural world. And she's the author of this absolutely wonderful book we've been talking about, Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World. Asia, thank you so much. Thank you. That was wonderful. of emotion and divine devotion opening the notions of medicines and potions emanating the brilliance of a trillion suns as love flows in the current of the river that runs tapping and unraveling a sacred conversation grounding meditation in crazed illumination communicating love is its own demonstration arteries are city streets open navigation heart pulses beats lungs and trees both breathe deep as I leaf beat when the seasons repeat Subways and trains, blood vessels and veins All one in the same frame, given a different name Love is the limit as we give the heart a visit Moving up and then we're in it as we're living by the minute Impermanent phenomena rise and fall To a feeling always calling, creating us all
present time and keep me in moments of pure grace. Now we can create space, star phase, tree trace, interwoven patterns of my dream life portrait. Fear is not the enemy in the subtext of the landscape. Allow courage to form before we shift shape and tame fate. We have chosen this life here, don't be an ingrate. The heartbeat of the world is an African djembe. Spicing up the streets like cayenne over tempeh. Passionate harmonies wet the soul's true appetite. Watch the earth rise from a natural satellite. Rain gon' come as the deities demonstrate. Pain is released and the protocols penetrate. Now we all feast in a Stonehenge palace. Calling in guides from Aurora Borealis. Medicine to heal the jealous and the callous. Gratitude for blessings with which you have endowed us. Examine resources Cause I see you in many places Many faces You found me chasing What was always placed within Painstaking Till I surrender with patience With love as the only motivation It's home yeah. Sweet home For me They said there was no re-entry But you're my back door A hacker's mind never empty for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com/wgdr. That's soundcloud.com/wgdr. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Let's play this hand I'm all in from a natural satellite. Creating us all, creating us all. Life is constructed according to plans formulated by the architects of being and appears on the inhabited planets either by direct importation or as a result of the operations of the life carriers of the local universes. These carriers of life are among the most interesting and versatile of the diverse family of universe suns. They are entrusted with designing and carrying creature life to the planetary spheres. And, after planting this life on such new worlds, they remain there for long periods to foster its development. Support your local life carrier. This message has been a public service announcement brought to you by your local universe.